Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. Indeed. Uh, If you're new, my name is Mark, one of the pastors here. Uh, We've been listening to the parables of Jesus over the course of this summer. We've been paying special attention, you know this if you've been here, to the secretive nature of those parables. The kingdom of God is a secret. The kingdom of God is veiled. That is to say, it cannot be seen except through eyes of faith. And so when Jesus sets out to tell the secrets of the kingdom of God, he does so in a secretive way. He does so in a way that is consonant with the secretive nature of the kingdom of God. He uses these secretive parables to unlock the secrets of the kingdom of God. What he is in essence doing is inviting people to see the kingdom through eyes of faith. He is not revealing the kingdom of God in such a way that it could be seen or observed apart from eyes of faith. Jesus himself says elsewhere that the kingdom will not come in a way that can be observed. The kingdom of God is always breaking in in a way that requires faith to hear and see. It is invisible to the natural eye. And so Jesus is participating in that secretive nature of the kingdom in the way that he teaches about the kingdom. Now this parabolic way of teaching is extremely difficult to do well. It takes practice. And what we can see over the course of the teaching ministry of Jesus is that he slowly gets better at it. He actually practices this craft of teaching through parables. The early parables of Jesus, early on in his teaching ministry, are not as full-bodied and multi-layered as the parables become later on in his teaching ministry. As the scripture says, he grows in wisdom. And you can observe this as you study the parables, perhaps nowhere more clearly than in the parable that we are looking at today, this morning, the parable of the great banquet. Jesus first tells this parable at a Sabbath meal 
in the home of a Pharisee. He's provoked to tell it by watching this Pharisee and his honorable guests take their seats around the dinner table according to the highest places of honor. The guests at this meal are trying to position themselves according to rank, according to status. And this provokes Jesus to point out to them that they are being quite foolish in this endeavor, that the way that they are ranking themselves actually has no place in the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God does not operate in that way. Now, when he's provoked, he responds to them, not first in a parable. He simply says to them, don't do this, you fools, something to that effect. But the gears in Jesus' mind at that point then begin to crank. You can almost watch this play out in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is provoked by this initial action of these honorable, reputable people ranking themselves. He first tells them point blank, don't do this, you fools, and then begins to craft something with a bit more kingdom pluck. He wants to provoke them further. He wants to elevate the level of tension in the room. And so he explicitly then begins to teach about how they ought to go about throwing a dinner party how they ought to go about holding a feast. And he says, when you hold a feast, don't invite those who are honorable and have great reputation, those sorts of people that could in some way repay you, even if only through social capital and standing. He says, but instead, invite the most dishonorable sort of people. Invite the most overlooked sort of people. Invite the marginalized people the people that no one is paying attention to, the people who can't repay you. Invite the poor and the lame and the blind, those people that in their day were considered unclean, considered not blessed by God. Now you have to imagine this scene as getting painfully awkward at this point because Jesus is a guest in the home of a Pharisee, a guest in the home of an honorable man, someone of great reputation in his area, who has invited others of great reputation in the area, and Jesus has just point blank rebuked them for having these kinds of honorable dinner parties. Everyone, no doubt, is looking around the table and noticing that none of the people that Jesus has just instructed them to invite are, in fact, present. No doubt, many of the guests are shifting their eyes or looking down, starting to be rather embarrassed for the sake of their host, who is being publicly shamed. And one of the good-natured, fellas in the group, someone kind of like you and me who despises this kind of social awkwardness and would do anything to escape a situation like this, tries to make one of those can't we all just get along kind of statements, a change the subject statement, a move forward, cut the tension kind of statement. He says, isn't it wonderful that everyone will be blessed who eats bread in the kingdom of God? And Jesus will have none of it. He has built this tension for a purpose. He does not mean to have it now deflated 
without driving his point home. And so it's at this point, now thinking on the fly, no doubt, that Jesus begins to concoct this parable of the great banquet. He responds to this good-natured fellow's can't-we-all-get-along statement with his first telling of this parable of the great banquet. Now, it's a rather simple telling at this point. There are not many layers to it. He simply tells of a king who holds a banquet, invites guests, invites honorable guests, sends his servants out to invite these guests, and those guests that he means to come to the banquet are too busy doing honorable things to take a break and go to a party. And so the king then instructs his servants to go out and invite the riffraff, to go out and invite the dishonorable people, the people of no repute, to come and enjoy the banquet. And it winds up being the honorable types, those who had declined the initial invitation, who are excluded from eating in the kingdom, eating at the banquet. Okay, this rather simple telling of the parable, it serves the purpose of the moment, no doubt. It increases even further the tension that was felt around that table, indicts even further those who are sitting there. He is in essence saying that it is your honorability that will exclude you from the kingdom of God. In fact, you exclude yourselves by insisting that you hold on to your reputation, hold on to your honorability. That's what winds up being what keeps you away from the feast of the king, from the table of the king. So the parable serves the purposes of that day, but also, apparently, Jesus sees in this little story some benefit for a future day. And he tucks it into his pocket with the intention of polishing it and saving it for some later date. And sure enough, some time later, in the final week of his natural life, when he's arrived in Jerusalem and he is having his most confrontational moments with the religious leaders and the religious system of the day, when he is driving the religious leaders out of the temple, when he is cursing the law as having never produced fruit, Jesus, in that moment then, brings out this parable again retells it, only now with far more layers. It's a much richer and fuller parable, and that's the parable that we'll consider today. It begins this way in Matthew chapter 22. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come.'" So in this telling of the parable, we immediately start to get more detail. We see in this telling of the parable that this is no ordinary banquet. In fact, this is the wedding feast for the king's son. And as such, this king will not be easily dissuaded from inviting guests in. He wants very much for his son's wedding feast to be a packed house. 
And so even in the face of this initial rejection, these guests saying that they are too busy to come, the king persists. He tries again in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Okay, this king means to throw the party of all parties. No expense has been spared. The finest food, the finest drink, all the preparations have been made. He is pleading, only come to this party. This king knows that this will not be the sort of party that anyone in their right mind would want to miss. This will be a party that you would want to be at. And so he is going to great trouble to ensure that everyone knows the party is happening. And yet, even so, as this parable goes, these invited guests are too busy to notice what's happening here. They're too busy to really give consideration to this invitation, to really see what exactly this party is offering. One of the invited guests has farm chores to get done, another has important business to attend to, and the remainder of the guests treat these king's servants as obnoxious flies and beat them to death. We told you no. Get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. Now here, at this point in the parable, Jesus adds a whole extra layer. He says that in response to this rejection, the king is angered. And he sends troops out to meet with these invited guests who had killed his servants. He sends troops out to deal with these murderers by putting them to death and burning their city. These people that had so much farming to do, so much business to do, so much for that, when the sky is now black with smoke. Now, why does Jesus include this extra layer? Why does he take this parable into this violent and bloody place? Well, really, truly, it's simply a fleshing out of the original parable. Jesus is just speaking now more clearly of just how grave it is to reject the invitation of the king. He's speaking to what it is that's actually at stake when we reject the invitation of the king to the party of the kingdom. See, because this parable is quite obviously about that great occasion when God throws a party. And God's parties are not like other parties because God's home is not like other homes. God's home has no address because there is never any reason to look for or seek out the residence of God. God takes up residence in all the heavens and all the earth, such that when he throws a party, the music blares into every corner of creation. To reject an invitation to the party of God is to reject participation in creation. 
to reject an invitation to the party of God is to decreate oneself. It's to somehow fall under the delusion that there is such a thing as life apart from God. But in truth, what this parable is driving home is that there is only one party in all the cosmos. There is only one home in all the cosmos. There is only one life in all the cosmos. God is the only source of life and being. There is no rejecting him. He's it. To reject him is to live in some fiction, to live in some scorched city, to live in some place of black soot masquerading as a metropolis. It's not real. That city where the farmer goes to look for life, that place where the businessman goes to do his important business dealings, it's burned. It's already burned. It's charred and scorched. This is such a grave thing when we come to the conclusion that we can carve out life for ourselves apart from God, that we can somehow find some quarter of the universe to live in our own independence and flourish there. No such place exists. And yet, every one of us regularly over the course of our lives, come to that conclusion. Every one of us convinces ourselves that we have farm chores to do, that we have important business deals to make. We all set out over the hill to try and make a name for ourselves or to use and abuse people for our own sexual fantasies, to carve out something that would give us life and joy apart from the grace and kindness and provision and instruction of the Lord. We live tepid, lukewarm lives as though they were the real thing. And this parable is saying to us, there is no such place. There will be no wallowing in half-creation. In the creation of God, in the party of God, he will insist on full and rich life or nothing at all. There is no half-life for us to have. We cannot borrow some of what God has made and not live in the fullness and richness of God. We can't dip our toe into God, as it were. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. The whole heavens and the whole earth are his and the fullness thereof, and he insists that we participate in that Fullness. To reject him is to reject participating in creation itself. There's nothing in between fullness and outer darkness. It is as stark and grave as that. We will party with God and be, or we will reject him and reject being. Now, for some of you, you might say, well, that puts me in a terrible spot because I am not the sort of person who gets invited to royal feasts. I've done things, I've said things that I know God despises, 
Therefore, I am not a worthy person. I'm the sort of person for whom things always go bad. Let me tell you, be careful with that kind of talk. Because you may well wind up talking yourself out of the party for the ages. If you only knew what kind of king runs the world. This king throwing this party is not the sort of king that screens his guests. In fact, this king throwing this party, he makes all other kings blush at who it is that he includes on his guest list. He throws the doors of his home wide open and announces that drinks are on the house. Listen to this in this parable, starting in verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Notice here, the only ones who are counted unworthy to attend the feast are those who refuse to come. The only way to disqualify yourself from the party of God is to not go. God has thrown open the doors, he says, to both bad and good. He has welcomed us all with open arms. That means there will be people there who have their ducks in a row, and there will be people there who do not. There will be people there who sin little, and there will be people there who sin big. People who simply cannot reform themselves. People who are stuck and caught in their own folly. The only qualification to enter the party of God is yes. To respond to the open and free invitation of God with yes. Now Jesus ends this parable with yet another layer that's not present in the first telling of it. The king is delighting when this assembled group of riffraff that has crawled out of the gutters and taverns winds up filling his house He's ecstatic that his son's wedding feast is full. It's a packed house. But he notices that one among the guests is not wearing a wedding garment. The very wedding garments that this king had laid aside and handed out to all who came through the door, somehow someone slipped in without being clothed in these freshly laundered, clean, sparkling garments. And so the king approaches this man, this oddball, and addresses him as friend and asks him, friend, why aren't you wearing one of the wedding garments? And this man who somehow slinked in without putting on the garment rejects this offer of friendship from the king. He does not respond to the king's addressing of him as friend. Instead, he stands there in fright and doesn't open his mouth. And so the king treats him in the same way that he treated those who had rejected his party altogether. And he casts him out into outer darkness, and Jesus provides only one parabolic comment on all of this. The comment with which he sums up the whole parable, 
he says this in Matthew twenty two fourteen, For many are called, but few are chosen. Here's the point. At the party of God, there is fullness. Outside the party of God, there is nothing. There is darkness. God will not have people at his party who do not live in his fullness, who are not bathed in his glory, who are not dressed in fine linen. To say yes to the party of God is to enter into the fullness and richness of the glory of God. There are no half measures here. We will all be there, good and bad, with only this in common, that he has called us friend, and we have answered yes. We have only one task, in fact, to receive all this goodness from the Lord, and it's just that, receive it. A simple yes is all that is needed. The king requires no grand overtures of thanks or gratitude. He simply wants a house full of guests. Guests that he has clothed. Guests that he has included. And he won't be needing any assistance in throwing this party. This parable makes clear all the preparations have been made. All the food has been prepared. No expense has been spared. He doesn't need any help with the dishes. There's no more chairs to set up. Just put on the robe and start enjoying the party. And if you want to talk to the king, walk up to him and go ahead. He's not the VIP type. There's nothing to do to qualify yourself to speak to him. And likewise, his son. He welcomes all who are at the party and communes with them and speaks with them and loves them and is one with them. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's party and let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that there is no qualifying action on our part in order to enter being and life, even eternal life with you. We thank you that you do not count our sins against us, that you don't 
hold us to account to atone for what it is that we have done for our failures and missteps and even evil deeds. We thank you that in you we are clothed, one and the same, those who sin little and those who sin big in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for inviting us to the party. Would you send your spirit to break down the folly in our minds and hearts that would go chasing charred remains in some burned city far off from you? Would you rescue us from clutching after things of folly in our gutters and taverns that we would awaken to what is being offered here and say yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Father, remind us, help us to remind each other of the good news and what you've invited us into. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.